You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm uh, waiting for Larry Pratt to join us here shortly. Larry is the uh, president of Gun Owners of America and an old friend and an expert on Second Amendment issues. And we'll be talking to him soon, I hope. Uh, we haven't had a call in from him yet, but uh, he emailed me earlier today and said he was going to come on the show. In the meantime, I watched the President of the United States a few minutes ago ask for authorization from Congress to go after ISIS. But as usual, he spent most of his time saying what we're not going to do, almost reassuring the terrorist organization, first of all, of course, he did call it terrorist organization, didn't refer to them as Islamic jihadists. Now, that's a no-no as far as he's concerned. I mean, yesterday he called the attack on the, the killing of Jews in Paris at the kosher uh, deli. He called that a random act of violence, uh, again, refusing to go and call you know, our enemy that what it is, and that's radical Islam, Islamic jihad. And so he didn't do that again today, and he basically told them that we're not going to use our ground troops, that we're not going to do anything really to harm them. Uh, the you know that we're going to continue to bomb ISIS, and supposedly we're doing a great job with that. And uh, but you know we set a limitation on it, three-year limitation. This is similar to what he did with Iraq, Afghanistan. I mean, let's face it, we went into Iraq. Or he became president, and he decided to pull all of our troops out of Iraq. And he did that, and he left a vacuum in there that has created uh, ISIS and the fact that they have taken over a large portion of Iraq at this point. Now he's promised to pull our troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, he says the Taliban, by the way, is not a terrorist organization. Uh, the White House says the Taliban is an armed insurgency, and therefore we can negotiate with them and pay them for release of hostages, whatever. You know, he, he took five top Taliban fighters and he basically turned them over to the uh, to the Taliban again. He's in Qatar and traded them for Bo Bergdahl, who is an army deserter. In the meantime, well, at least one of them has rejoined the fight against American soldiers. Yet Obama continues to talk about pulling most troops out of Afghanistan and basically leaving the same type of vacuum there that he left in Iraq so that these uh, troops can come in there and, you know, the ISIS terrorists can come in and take over. My, and Michael, Taliban. could, could, I, could yep. I ask you a question? Uh, you were a JAG officer. What the hell's taking so long to get Bergdahl tried, convicted, in hard labor? Well, I wasn't actually in JAG. I was in military intelligence, but... Uh, I'm very familiar with JAG because uh, my former law partner was involved heavily with the military justice system. And Bergdahl has got to be charged. The Pentagon has got to charge him with desertion. And at that point, uh, he will be tried for desertion and could be put to death, uh, you know, or at least be, be put in prison for a long time because he deserted in the face of the enemy. Now, there's a difference between soldiers going AWOL or deserting in peacetime and those who are actually in the face, the face of the enemy. And he was facing the enemy, he deserted, deserted his, his platoon, and people went out, they didn't know what had happened, his fellow soldiers at that point, 
Uh, some of them suspected he deserted, but there was a rescue mission that went out to get him anyway. That mission was ambushed, and American soldiers died trying to find this guy. So he clearly deserted his post to the face of the enemy, and he deserves to be tried. And the White House is stonewalling this. They are trying to cover up what's happened here. And, again, it, it, Obama's whole premise was that, you know, we're trading for one of our soldiers. We don't want any soldier left behind. And, therefore, I'm willing to give a turnout of five high Taliban leaders who will go out and try to kill our soldiers and terrorize the, the population of Afghanistan, particularly the women. And he says, that's okay because we're bringing one of our soldiers home. Now, that narrative falls apart if the Pentagon charges Bergdahl with desertion and they try him and find that he did, in fact, desert his post. And so that's what, what needs to happen here. The Pentagon's got to charge, but they're being, the Pentagon's being pressured by the White House not to do that. And that is a very great concern to me as a, a former officer in the military. What uh, What is the... Or is there any relationship to your to your knowledge? Is there any relationship to was it four or five uh, of the troops that were killed looking for the jerk? Uh, you know, in, in many ways, if he deserted, then he's responsible for their death. So, is there any correlation there that can be brought into a, a court martial that you know he he's in in my view. Uh, guilty of murder as well. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, any good prosecutor, JAG prosecutor, is going to uh, obviously use that to enhance the penalty and to, you know, not necessarily charge him without now murder, but say that his desertion, which is itself a, a crime punishable by death, his desertion in the face of the enemy led to the deaths of his fellow soldiers. And therefore, he is responsible for those deaths, whether you call them murder or manslaughter or whatever, he's responsible. And he should pay the entire the full penalty for that. So I am, you know, extremely, extremely hopeful that uh, uh, they will ultimately charge him. But as long as Obama's in the White House, I'm afraid that may not happen. Don't even want to go there. I, I'm... <laughs> I'm as sick as everybody else is of Mr. Obama and uh, his cowardly acts. Uh, that, that's at least my opinion. Well, you know, again, what he's doing today is, is just more of the same. He's uh, lying to the American people about where we stand with ISIS. They are not uh, being defeated. They have not been stopped from advancing and, and claiming more territory. And, you know, we have numerous complaints from the military and I've heard these complaints directly that they are being micromanaged by the White House and by this administration we have a president of the United States who has never been in combat who has never been in the military who we know despises our military, despises our veterans who is micromanaging what's happening over there we cannot launch airstrikes now we, we launch about 24 airstrikes a day against ISIS with this in enemy controlling as much territory as they control and being as strong as they are, I mean, let's face it, they've now got about 50,000 people fighting for ISIS. With that, that many people out there, that many of the enemy, we need to be launching about 10 times that number of airstrikes. And instead of 24 a day, we need to be launching about 250 a day. And we're not doing it. 
and many of the airstrikes, according to what I've been told, are actually not successful or not designed to be successful. Obama has many of their strikes being launched at night and being launched against empty buildings so that no ISIS fighters get killed. They launch them against pickup trucks and military vehicles that are sitting idle and so no ISIS fighters get killed. The most effective strikes apparently recently have been in the last couple of days by the Jordanians who have in response to their pilot being brutally executed by ISIS has really gone after these terrorists. But the uh, Obama administration doesn't do that, and we cannot have micromanagement. I mean, remember the case of the eight Marines, a squad of Marines that were killed in Afghanistan because of these ridiculous rules of engagement posed on them and our other troops by the Obama administration. Basically, for those people who don't know the story, the rules of engagement said that they could not call in airstrikes to engage the enemy. They could not call in artillery supports to engage the enemy unless they were absolutely sure that everybody they were in the area that they were facing was armed. You know, make sure there were no civilians. Well, in this particular situation, we had a squad of Marines surrounded by 200 members of the Taliban who were in the hills around them, firing down on them. They called for airstrikes. They called for artillery support. They were told that they had to prove that all 200 of those people had their arms. If even one of them did not was not carrying a weapon, then they could not have the airstrikes. Well, obviously, they, they couldn't prove anything. I mean, they were in, under fire. They couldn't even stick their heads up to try to count noses, much less uh, decide who was armed and who wasn't. So they didn't get the support, and they were overrun, and all of them were killed. And this is something that's made very little of the news. Uh, Fox News has talked about it. In fact, interviewed the father of one of the Marines who was killed, who says it was tantamount to murder by the Obama administration. But this is the way they're playing the game. And right. unfortunately to Obama, it is a game. Let me, let me ask something with regard to what you're saying, but it also goes with Benghazi. It also goes with the micromanagement that you're talking about. And that is, in the Constitution, is there anything that says any action that can be taken or is specifics of the fact that we, we know that two idiot ladies one on either side of Obama, I guess, and I'm speaking of the Muslim Valerie Jarrett and the total imbecile Susan Rice that seem to be capable, or seem to, I say capable, they seem to be calling the plays of the military, causing a, a number of defense secretaries to resign at this point that I didn't have a whole lot of faith in them, but, uh, you know, at least they were trying and they resigned when they got tired of this stuff coming down. But is there anything in the Constitution that can, I, I don't say, whoa, Nellie, you can't do this. Uh, you're not an elected official. You can't make decisions, and you can't give orders to the Pentagon. Is there any, you know, where are we with these two ladies that seem to be dictating American policies, and they weren't, they're not elected. Well, there's a number of things in the Constitution that uh, put the burden on Obama. 
uh, his oath of office that he takes to protect and defend the Constitution, preserve and protect and defend the Constitution, the fact that he is commander-in-chief, and there's no provision in the Constitution that he can relinquish that to civilian authorities outside of, of, uh, of the military. So, you know, there's a number of things, and after we take our break, I'll, I'll talk more about something I'm drawing and writing right now that uh, deals with Obama's uh, not only impeachable offenses, but what I would call treasonable offenses at this point. We'll be back right after this. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF. A nonprofit organization is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Well, what we were talking about uh, earlier, David, is, you know, Valerie Jarrett and Susan Rice and whoever else is making the calls. I mean, see, here, here's the problem, one of the problems we have with this president, is he is so secretive about what he does and so secret about his background, we don't know who this man is. And we, to this day, over two years after it occurred, we do not know where the President of the United States was during the attack on Benghazi. The attack started during, you know, at night over there, but it was a daytime here. The man, the man apparently was never in the Situation Room. We've had high-ranking military officers and aides to the President admit that they didn't talk to him that day. Uh, so a couple of them said he was being kept advised, but why? where was he? What was he doing? And we don't know who made the call, but the speculation is that it was Valerie Jarrett who made the call to tell American troops that were within striking distance of Benghazi who could probably probably would not have gotten there in time to rescue the ambassador but could have gotten there in time to rescue the two Navy SEALs who gave their lives trying to defend the ambassador but they were told to stand down. I mean these guys were an hour away there were four of them of a security team four of them that were an hour away from Benghazi. They went to the airport in Tripoli. There was a C-130 aircraft waiting to take them. 
that they were told on direct order from the White House to stand down. And that order had to originate from the White House. It couldn't have originated anywhere else because I know no military commander is going to give a stand-down order when there are Americans uh, being killed and there's a chance to rescue them. We also had a, a full platoon of Marines, Special Forces, that was within a couple hours away. And see, this attack didn't just last 10 minutes. This attack lasted for over seven hours. And our Navy SEALs that were there, and they were there doing private security for the, the embassy at that point or for the consulate. Uh, they were not there as Navy SEALs, but they were, they were there, and they were holding off the enemy. And they thought they were going to have help. There were also aircraft in the area. I personally believe we actually had aircraft within striking distance. And I'm talking about with minutes away. Because these Navy SEALs were using little laser siders to paint the target. They were showing the people out there in the courtyard, the armed uh, terrorists, and they were painting the targets so that they could have airstrikes against them, airstrikes that never came because somebody had, had basically told our troops to stand down. Now, interestingly about the security force, too, the security force of four people, four members of the military, had originally been 14 members. And at the very time when there had been an attack on the British ambassador in, in Tripoli and they, in Libya, an attack on the British ambassador, a car bombing in front of the American consulate in Benghazi, and Chris Stevens had decided that they needed more protection. He asked Hillary Clinton in the State Department to increase his security team. Hillary Clinton responded by reducing the size of the security team from 14 members to four members. Then she hired some outside contractors to do some of the security at the consulate. They were British contractors, and they were told they could carry pistols but they couldn't have any bullets in their pistols. No shades of Barney Fife. <laughs> this has never been explained. We don't even know for sure where Hillary Clinton was during all this. I mean, was she and somebody was making calls from the State Department, but we don't know if it was her or what, what was going on. And the whole thing has just become more and more appalling to me as I've looked at it over the, over the last couple of years. And it's all part of the pattern that comes back to the Birdall scandal, and that is, whose side is this guy on? So I am pre preparing an article for my blog, and this is going to cause probably drones to be over my head, and I'm sure I'm going to be attacked for this one completely. But I'm basically going to call it like I see it. And I am listing what I think are acts of treason by the President of the United States against the people in this country. Well, isn't, isn't dereliction of duty treasonous? Well, here's the definition of treason. Now, this is in the Constitution. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Now, that's been legally interpreted as meaning that any action that seeks to strengthen our country's enemies or weaken our ability to defend ourselves against our enemies can be classified as treason. So yes, dereliction of duty could certainly be included in there if it gives aid and comfort to the enemy. It doesn't even have to be overt. It can be covert. It can be, you know, 
direct support of the enemy or just an attempt to try to support the enemy. Okay, let and me... When we look at the... Pardon me. Yep. I, I was just going to ask, has the term White House become synonymous with commander-in-chief or president? And if so, if someone is giving orders, quote-unquote, from the White House, i.e. Valerie Jarrett, or even Hillary, if she were around, then they were assuming the power of the president, which they they have no right to, and wouldn't that be illegal? Yeah, uh, it would obviously be illegal, because the president of the United States is designated in the Constitution as commander-in-chief of the military. It doesn't say that if the president is, is out to lunch that the vice president then becomes commander-in-chief or that the secretary of state or some advisor or some member of Congress becomes commander-in-chief. In order for somebody to take over that role, the president has to be incapacitated or removed from office by the members of his cabinet and members of Congress because something has happened to incapacitate the president, such as mental illness. And that's the only way anybody else can take over as commander-in-chief. If the, the president is not making the decisions for the military, then the top military commanders in the field have the obligation to make the decision, and they are not supposed to be having to listen to Valerie Jarrett or to Hillary Clinton or to anybody. The only other person, the civilian, that would be over them would be the Secretary of Defense. And the Secretary of Defense could make the call, uh, although I, I say that even that would be incorrect, the Secretary of Defense can't make the call to issue a stand-down order. Uh, but the Secretary of Defense could make calls if the president was not available for some reason, and the, uh, that's the, uh, the only civilian authority over the military other than the president. So if, if I were in the White House and I said stand down even though I'm nothing, could I be charged and could the president be charged as well? Well, it'll certainly be charged with dereliction of duty. And, I mean, this, uh, you know, this sir. goes back to when Haig said, I'm acting as president. He was Secretary of State. And uh, when he, when Reagan was shot, he said, you know, the vice president's not here, so I'm acting as president. And he caught all sorts of flack. So if a know-nothing like uh, Valerie Jarrett is saying, okay, I'm ordering you to stand down, this is the White House speaking, is she is she performing a criminal act and and then also is Obama, like you said, he he that's dereliction of duty on his part, but can she be charged for anything? By well, saying yeah, she she'd be charged certainly with, with exercising powers that she didn't have. Now, if the president of the United States told her, you know, she calls these these troops up. The general's up and says, the president has told me to order you to stand down. Then that could be taken as, as a direct order from the president if, in fact, the president happened, had, had done that. But there's no indication that this was the case here. This, this order did not come from the president of the United States, as far as I can tell. If it did, it didn't come through the president. And the commanders-in-chief, you know, the commanders, the field commanders out there, they would not have obeyed an order that had not, they did not reasonably believe was coming directly from the president, not just from anybody in the White House, but from, directly from the president. And uh, I think that's why shortly after this happened, uh, General Hamm was relieved, 
and there were several other high military officials that were in the area who were immediately relieved of their commands under false pretenses, and their careers were destroyed, and that was to keep them quiet, to keep them from saying what they really, what really happened that night and who gave the orders for them to stand down. Because, like I said, the President of the United States has the, is the only one that has authority to do that. And when Haig caught all that flack, you know, the, the succession is in the Constitution. The President of the United States, if he dies or is incapacitated, the Vice President takes over. If the Vice President and President are both dead, then the Speaker of the House of Representatives becomes the, the President until an election can be held. So, you know, there's no cabinet members in that succession. It's president, vice president, speaker of the House of Representatives. And I, 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 thought, I, is, th- I thought there was. I thought it, it if it went low enough that uh, Secretary of State could take over. Well, you know, it, it, uh, it's set up in the Constitution that they want an elected official to take over. Right. To be in the line of succession. And not an appointed official, and that's why I, you know it, it's set up for the an elected official, such as president, vice president, and then the speaker of the house. Now, after that, it's, it's kind of vague. So at that point, yeah, it's possible that somebody, uh, some member of the cabinet, could take over. But uh, the, when Reagan was was shot, Haig had no authority to take over at that point because he was an appointed cabinet member. He was not in the line of succession established by the Constitution. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, no problem. But going back to what I'm talking about on the aid and comfort business is, you know, you look at what Obama's been doing. I mean, since taking office in 2009, Obama has released numerous known terrorists from Gitmo, some without the prior, prior notice of the members of the Congress that Congress required of the president, required by law. That they be given 30 days' notice <laughs> of releases before they could take place. Obviously, that didn't happen with the five members of the Taliban that were traded for uh, Bo Bergdahl. Uh, they, nobody knew about that. Not even the heads of the intelligence committees in the Senate and the House of Representatives were given notice. That was t- kept totally in the, in the dark, totally out of the line of sight of the American public and our other elected representatives. And uh, we know that they, a lot of these terrorists who have been released from Gitmo have gone back into action against the, the United States. In fact, one of those terrorists that Obama had released is, in fact, the head of ISIS. Now, here is a massive terrorist group that is killing people around the world, mostly Christians, beheading Christians, and slaughtering you know thousands, countless thousands of people, including some of their fellow Muslims. It is being run by somebody that we had in custody at Guantanamo Bay. And I think it's time for our second break here. Yes, sir. We'll be back right after this. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, 
the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. But, you know, talking about what I consider to be aid and comfort to the enemy. And I, I want people to read this article, you know, when I post it. It'll probably be tonight, maybe tomorrow, before I get it finished and get it posted. It's going to cause some, some uh, backlash, I'm sure, uh, because I'm, in fact, accusing the President of the United States of being cre- of committing treason. But if you look at the definition of aid and comfort to the enemy, and you look at the list of stuff that I'm providing that he's doing, see if you draw the same conclusions. Go to Michael Connolly, C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y dot Jigsy, J-I-G-S-Y dot com, and decide what you think. And look at everything I'm saying here and see if you believe that he is providing aid and comfort to our enemies. And let's face it, the radical jihadists are our enemies. And he can call them whatever he wants. He won't call them what they are. He won't call them radical jihadists. He won't admit that they're Muslims. He won't be keeps claiming uh, Islam is a religion of peace, which in fact it has never been a religion of peace. And oh, by the way, the, the uh, idiotic comparison of what ISIS is doing to what the Christian armies did during the Crusades is just totally out of out of line. I mean, basically, that in itself is almost giving aid and comfort to the enemy, you know, because that that emboldens them. But the Crusades were in fact a defensive war that were fought because the Muslims were invading Europe and because the Muslims were invading the Holy Land and the Muslims had invaded Spain and the Crusades were to take back territory that the Muslims had taken away from from the Christians from the European armies the European nations and this was the reason for that war the reason for that war, or the reason for the Crusades, was because of Muslim aggression. And as somebody pointed out the other day, uh, followers of Christ don't go around beheading people in the name of Christ. Now, there have been actions in the name of the Church in the past, 
that have been horrendous. But why are we talking about a thousand years ago? Why are we talking about that instead of talking about the fact that we have an enemy out there, a horrendous enemy, that wants to kill Americans? And see, one of the things Obama Obama has been doing is he's been putting members of the... He's been a defender of the Muslim Brotherhood ever since he took office. Uh, he, He called for the Muslim Brotherhood to take over Egypt. They did. Uh, he pushed for that election to take place. The Muslim Brotherhood was elected. They immediately began imposing Sharia law on the Egyptians, and most of the Egyptians didn't want that, so they rose up against the uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, and they took back their country. Now, Obama has since cut off a lot of aid to Egypt, even though Egypt is one of our allies, cut off a lot of aid to Egypt and criticized heavily of the Egyptian people and the Egyptian government because they've outlawed the Muslim Brotherhood. But he showed his true colors when he went to Egypt, when Mubarak was still the president of Egypt. And he, you remember Obama's apology tour in 2009 where he went out and apologized to everybody in the world for all the bad things that the United States had done over our history. And uh, he, the major speech was made at the uh, Cairo University of Cairo and uh, Obama invited the members of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was outlawed at that point, invited them to come in. I just heard beep. Is Larry, is that you? I finally made it through. I had trouble getting all those numbers to work. Beg your pardon. Too high-tech for me. <laughs> well, good to have you on, Larry. Good to be uh, with you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Larry has made it on. Larry is the... Uh, head of Gun Owners of America, and he and I go back many, many years uh, working in conservative groups and everything. And uh, uh, we were, we've been sitting here talking uh, for a while about the uh, uh, speech that Obama made earlier. But I want to talk to you about what Obama's plans are. Well, first of all, tell people more about Gun Owners of America, because you guys have been doing a lot of good work for many, many years. Well, thank you, Michael. We uh, were set up over three decades ago to pursue a proactive agenda for rolling back gun control laws. Um, The most recent one to be added to the list of great ideas, quote-unquote, is the instant background check. Well, it is not a crime-fighting tool. The last year of record, it resulted in 14 prosecutions, and I'm not even sure there how many were convicted out of some 10 million plus background checks that were run so if anybody thinks they're fighting crime or keeping guns out of bad guys hands with a background check they're wrong and we've been fighting that even though the nra has supported that it was actually their idea as a way of heading off uh, the waiting period and at, at the time that debate was occurring over two decades ago we pointed out look Both are unconstitutional ideas, but at least the waiting period doesn't give the government anybody's data. And the instant background check sure does. Oh, but the law says they have to get rid of it after 24 hours. Right. And the law said that NSA wasn't able to listen to all our phone calls either. But uh, if they'll listen to Aunt Mary calling uh, Sister Susie, I do think they're going to have even more interest and who has guns in this country? Oh, absolutely. Whenever I make a speech about the, the Second Amendment, and I've been making a lot of them lately, I, 
I point out that if you really believe that they destroy that information, uh, like they're required to by law, then I got a nice piece of property in the Everglades I'll be glad to sell you. Absolutely. I got one, too. I'll be glad to compete with you on the price. <laughs> Beachfront property, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh. oh, my. I've been talking a lot about the veterans' issues, and we'll get to that in a moment if we have a chance. But tell me where we are or where you see us with the next two years of Obama. I see him as going all out in, after our guns using executive orders. I'm very concerned about what the White House is floating about the Small Arms Treaty, claiming that he doesn't have to submit it to the United States Senate for ratification, like it's called for in the Constitution, that he can enforce the treaty, and that the Senate then has to vote by two-thirds majority to stop him from enforcing it. Where do you see him, our, our biggest threats coming from Obama over the next couple of years? Uh, the Republican Party that refuses to hold him accountable, that refuses to cut off his money, that just absolutely quivers at the thought that Obama uh, might oppose them. Uh, they had a, a pretty good idea. They were going to put the Homeland Security budget aside and have that dealt with separately for funding. The idea being that they could zap defund uh, the president's unilateral, unconstitutional, illegal amnesty, uh, essentially what he declared for illegal aliens in the country, at least some five million. And rather than, uh, you can just see it coming, rather than insist that there be no Homeland Security Department budget at all if Obama won't agree to a budget without funding for his uh, amnesty proposal, the Republicans are just going to cave in. I, I can just see it coming because they do not. And who in the world that's a normal uh, 20, you know, eight hour a day working American citizen has any real benefit they derive from Homeland Security? The, most of the workers there are declared essential. So if the money shuts off, God help us, they still are going to be at work. And so nothing is going to slow down. It's a toothless threat the president is making, and yet the, the, the crier of the House, Speaker Boehner, simply will cave in a paroxysm of tears. Well, well you know, I'm, I'm very concerned, as you are, about what's happening in our, our so-called Republican-controlled Congress. And, uh, but where do you see him going with the small arms treaty and executive actions? I know that they don't really... We know that Kerry lied. I mean, I read the original Small Arms Treaty proposal, and then I read the final version of it. And it was obvious that one of the requirements was aimed directly at the United States to require the registration of all firearms in this country. And Kerry said that that wasn't in, in there, and Obama said it wasn't in there. Now we know it is in there. And, of course, he's going to have to uh, bypass Congress, essentially, because Congress has already said that there will not be any funds available for gun registration in this country. So I see until we get rid of the yeah, Mike. Until we get rid of the background check, they are building a registration list. So that's uh, they're already pre-complying with a treaty they haven't even signed because they've been breaking the law. I'm convinced this has been going on at least since George Bush, uh, not necessarily with his concurrence but happening all the same, because the 
bureaucrats are out of control. They're seldom held to account. There's seldom any consequences for when they break the law. Just uh, when you and I stumble and uh, break something we didn't even half the time realize was a law uh, or a regulation, uh, they grow these things like a metastatic cancer. And it's very distressing. And the one encouraging thing I've seen lately is a report from Capitol Hill that Republican offices are getting haircuts from their constituents. They are so absolutely over-the-top upset with the majority of the caucus that caved both to, to re-elect Boehner and then to go ahead and fund the Obama agenda through the end of this fiscal year, the end of September. Those two votes have people gnawing the carpet. They're so angry. And I think there are going to be primary opponents, God willing, another one this time better funded against Boehner himself. And with the increased anger that these little sissy boys have produced because they haven't been willing to do what we sent them to Washington to do, which is stop Obama. They've just rolled over and let this huckster keep on going. Well, I think some of them are going to have a chance to commiserate with Eric Cantor, who was bounced in a primary this last year. And by the way, David Bratt voted right. He voted against Boehner, and he's voted against these funding monstrosities. Uh, he is doing what we sent him to do. And anybody listening, please get behind your own David Bratt and have him whoop one of these worthless Republicans in a primary. Exactly. We, you know, we have to hold these people accountable. Uh, we elected them. We have to hold them accountable. We're going to take a quick break here, Larry. We'll be back in a minute. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. 
Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Well, Larry, I've been making like I said, a lot of speeches on the Second Amendment issues, particularly those involving veterans who are uh, being put on the next list for having minor PTSD or uh, being depressed. And by the way, let me interrupt right there. We warn that something just like that any excuse is a good excuse when you want to grab somebody's guns. We saw that coming. That's why we opposed what we labeled the Veterans Disarmament Act uh, back under Bush, because they were up to the same tricks then. Now, with Obamacare, better known as Zero Care, everybody is being subject to the same game. Any kind of psychiatric consultation you might have had, even if you were far from being considered a threat to self or others, which is the definition of disarmament under the law, they come and get your guns anyway. And that is where we've gone by letting them pass. That's why we opposed Obamacare. We saw this thing coming just as sure as it could have been, and it's here and it's happening. And it's not just the veterans. I've been pointing out that they're now coming after exactly. civilians. And, uh, in fact... My fiance is now under Medicare and recently went to a new doctor who takes Medicare to get her yearly physical, and he told her that he had a series of questions, and he apologized for this, a series of questions that he was required to ask new Medicare patients. And some of them dealt with you know, cognitive ability and this sort of thing. But one of the questions, and we I saw it coming, was, do you own a firearm? And he apologized for asking him, but he says he's required by the federal government. And I know you and your group and, and my group, the United States Justice Foundation, and your group, the Gun Owners of America, have been putting together oppositions uh, through the, the attorneys we work with, putting together opposition to new BATF rules and HHS rules that are basically broadening what they're doing to the veterans to include civilians. That, am I not correct there? Absolutely. Uh, give you an example. Under the new SAFE Act in New York State, they started matching records uh, of the sort you're talking about, medical uh, slash psychiatric records, with the gun registry, which they've maintained unconstitutionally for many years in New York State. And this one poor schlub about 25 years ago went to a shrink for a mild depression that he was suffering. You know, he just had the blues. It wasn't. He wasn't at all suicidal or homicidal or anything like that. Just Doc, I you know been feeling kind of down. So he was given a mild antidepressant. He got a knock on the door about three three months ago. Hand your guns over, bud. So that's what they use these medical records for. It's not for our good. It's for our disarmament and other reasons that I haven't even thought of that they'll figure out how to control us. Well, you also have in New York State, you've got the, uh, the Navy veteran uh, just a couple of weeks ago who they came and confiscated his guns because he was being, he'd never been treated for PTSD. He'd never been treated for depression. He'd never really had much in the way of medical problems, but as he got older, he developed insomnia. And he went to get treated for insomnia, which by no definition is a mental illness. 
yet they use that to seize his weapons. Have you heard about that? Oh, one? man, don't you know about all the mass shootings that have occurred from insomniacs? They're, they're just a really wild and dangerous group. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but that's how scary it is. I mean, they've taken the hippo Very. law and basically dissolved it. And the hippo law, for people who don't know, is a law that requires our medical records to be private unless we say they can be revealed. Now, and you know what I found about the HIPAA law? The only people that are that I'm protected from them seeing my records are my wife. Really? If she wants to I, see my records, she has to crawl over glass. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. What do you now? We were talking about the Safe Act in New York. Uh, we have the crazies out in California, and Illinois, and New York, and Maryland. Uh, coming after the, the gun ownership there, the Second Amendment, under state laws. Uh, but we also have a situation where we've got a lot of state legislatures out there who are basically looking to nullify any federal laws. Uh, how do you see us? What's our best approach to take with the states like that? Well, uh, Kansas, I think, has passed a pretty good law which uh, says we're not going to cooperate and it will be illegal for any state officer uh, or county officer or municipal officer to cooperate with the feds in the conduct of an unconstitutional Second Amendment violation. Now, I, I had a chance to discuss that concept with a county commissioner in Maryland, in Carroll County, where they did something almost identical, and they declared their county a Second Amendment sanctuary. And I, I, I asked this commissioner, I said, well, you know, I'm delighted that you're not going to participate with the feds when they try to pull one of these stunts off uh, and come and bust somebody. Uh, but really, um, what good is just non-participation? Why can't you arrest them? Why don't you get that kind of uh, statute on your books? And he said, well, I'll take your point, but keep in mind that the feds, for all of the too many people they have, at any one place and time don't have enough to carry out these kinds of of bus, and so they rely necessarily on state and municipal law enforcement, uh, sheriffs, deputies, whatever it might be. And if they don't have that support, that cooperation, unless they really want that particular individual really bad, it's not going to happen. And I said, okay, well, that beats nothing. Beats a kick in the pants, that's for sure. And uh, the next level up of uh, defending liberty is what's going on right now in Eddy County, New Mexico, where the sheriff told the IRS that wanted to foreclose on this guy's uh, property, uh, Mr. Carter, uh, that they weren't going to be able to change the locks on his property uh, because he would arrest them if they tried it. Now, the, 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 the issue is still in court, and Mr. Carter is doing everything the system says he's supposed to do. The feds obviously have a different opinion of what he's supposed to do, but he's in court to resolve it. That's the proper forum. Well, that's not good enough for the IRS. They came to seize his property. And the sheriff of Eddy County said, out of here. On Thursday, uh, my plan is to be in Eddy County. I guess it's going to be Carlsbad. And to observe if the feds come and, and try to conduct a sale of Mr. Carter's property. The sheriff has said, there isn't going to be any sale. I'll, I'll arrest anybody who tries to have a sale. 
Now, when you have sheriffs like that, the feds all of a sudden are checkmated. About the only way they're going to overcome that sheriff is to send something equivalent to the 82nd Airborne in there to uh, overwhelm him. And not only are they not really likely to be able to do that, uh, the optics wouldn't be too cool either. Yeah, keep me informed about what happens there, because I'd heard about that, but I didn't have the details. But you know, you're talking about the sheriff. You and I both work with an organization called the Constitutional Sheriff's Peace Officers Association. And right. we've been to their conferences, and they did something remarkable back in January. We've just got about three minutes left here. But tell tell my listeners about the declaration they made uh, the, in, in January. Well, they had a conference uh, here in the District of Columbia at the National Press Club, and those in attendance, uh, those sheriffs and other law enforcement types, signed a declaration pretty much equivalent to what we've been discussing, that they're just not going to play the dictator uh, if the feds are trying to get them to do that. And that uh, is now being circulated, and I'm sure it's still being, uh, their names being added to it, probably even as we speak, uh, so that the feds are on notice that, uh, guys, um, we're, we're on to you. We know that you've been doing a lot of things that are not constitutional, and we're here to tell you that you're not going to do those things anymore, certainly not in those counties that are signed below. Yeah, that, that's a declaration. I've written an article on my blog at michaelconnelly.jigsy.com um, several, about a year ago. I put a link to that declaration, and people need to go and see that. I'm a signer on it, and uh, a lot of the sheriffs are, and we have some quite a few here from Texas, and uh, people need to take a look at that uh, because it's extremely important, and you need to get your local sheriff, your local police chief, and other members of the uh, law enforcement community to go on that site, take a look at that, and sign it. Larry, we got to wrap it up here, but tell people how they can reach your organization and how they can help you. The easiest way is on the web. We're at gunowners.org, and please go to gunowners.org. We've got free email alerts that you can sign up for, and it essentially equips you to be an armchair lobbyist with a couple of clicks of your mouse. And people can also go to United States Justice Foundation, USJF.net, to see what we're doing. Uh, Larry's group and my group, uh, we collaborate on all kinds of lawsuits and and filing amicus briefs and everything in the Supreme Court and Courts of Appeal. Uh, Anything involving the Second Amendment, some stuff involving the Fourth Amendment. Uh, You know, Larry's group is is protecting your constitutional rights out there. And uh, Larry's been doing this for a long time, and he and I have been working together for a long time. So it's important to support both of these organizations. Uh, Go to, what is it, gunowners.org? Gunowners.org. Right. Gunowners.org or usjf.net. Larry, thanks for being on, and let's do this again uh, in the near future. I look forward to it, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, take care. Hey, bye-bye. Thank you for listening in today, ladies. I'm going to talk to you again next week. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.